Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of New Books in Critical Theory, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm your host, Louisa Han, and I'm really happy to be joined today by Astra Taylor to discuss her new book, The Age of Insecurity, which was recently published by House of Nancy Press as part of the CBC Massey Lecture Series. Um, Astra, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to uh, chatting about the book. Um, so usually I kind of read out a short bio to introduce guests, but I think kind of given your very background, um, I wonder whether you'd be able to introduce yourself to our audience and explain, you know, where this book kind of fits in with your wider work. Yeah. So I am a writer, an occasional documentary filmmaker, and a political organizer. So I've written numerous books at this point that uh, are all works of sort of social critique, social theory, uh, ranging from the People's Platform, Taking Back Power and Culture in the Digital Age, which was a sort of political economy of the internet, published in 2014, to uh, 2018's Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone. Um, uh, and uh, I have a forthcoming book um, on solidarity, uh, which the subtitle is The Past, Present, and Future of a World-Changing Idea. Uh, so in all of these books, the question of collective action of political organizing is really key. And over the last decade, I've just gotten deeper and deeper into um, uh, movement spaces through my work as a co-founder of the Debt Collective, which is the world's first union for debtors. So we have been very instrumental in putting the issue of student debt cancellation on the political agenda in the United States and um, politicizing uh, the problem of personal indebtedness um, in this country. Uh, and I made various films about philosophy, one called Zizek. Back when I was like 23 years old, I made a film about Slavoj Zizek, one called Examined Life, one uh, called What is Democracy, which was kind of a companion to that book. So the Massey Lectures, um, you know, this this is kind of a, a bit of a genre-bending book in that it draws on um, different fields. I mean, there's some economic history uh, there are, uh, are elements of memoir. Um, there's long discussion of the insurance industry. Um, there's uh, reflections on ecology, um, and uh, and it was a, a project that w- really came out of an invitation. So I was invited to give this year's Massey lectures. So uh, you write a book, and then you go and you give five lectures across Canada on a kind of cross Canada tour, and. What, so that meant that this book was meant to be read. It's also they're broadcast on the radio, so they're being broadcast on the radio this week, which is really um, it's interesting. It changed how I wrote because I I thought about people encountering them while driving their car and commuting home, or um, taking a walk down the street and just you know tuning in, uh, listening in there with their earbuds. And so it's it's kind of a a conversational book that really. Um, kind of blends a lot of the issues I care about, <laughs> but with this goal towards reaching an a re, a, an audience, a listenership or a readership who who don't necessarily know who I am or where I'm coming from, and essentially saying to them, you know, hey, here's a framework for understanding a lot of the challenges you're facing and for understanding um, your emotional life, the fact that you're you you feel insecure. Yeah, great. I mean, it kind of comes through in the book, I suppose, in terms of how concise it is, the fact that it's for radio as well, Um, because it kind of manages to, yeah, introduce us to like a host of ways in which insecurity has been kind of manufactured, utilised as a means to kind of keep capitalism's like like wheels turning, essentially, um, as well as kind of some of the ways that people have been coming together to like fight their collective insecurity as you mentioned um some of the ways there and and indeed what we can kind of learn from the world um 
from them, sorry, as the world kind of seems to become more unstable and more unpredictable, etc. So, yeah, I, I mean, in terms of like the the kind of um, like memoir aspects of the book, I find that that meant that the book was like a real pre- pleasure to read in some ways. Um, uh, kind of learning about your own experiences of um, becoming like conscious of um, you know the ways in which the world is profoundly insecure in some ways um and yeah there were definitely moments that I found sort of relatable and then others that I found like so far removed from my own kind of upbringing that was quite interesting um and yeah we can kind of get into those as as the as the conversation kind of progresses um but first up I suppose my first question is really basic um basic but also quite expanding I suppose um quite wide-ranging take a number of avenues so what do you yeah. mean by insecurity yeah. what are the various forms of insecurity that, that the forms that insecurity takes um and why did you take it as kind of central concept for it to kind of critique capitalist yeah. approaches really to organizing society yeah I guess first I'll say something a little bit about about the personal anecdotes I mean one is mm. you know again knowing I was just going to reach people with my voice you know mm. There is something about the personal story that grabs folks, right? It it is engaging, and it contextualizes me and where I'm coming from in this, uh, and and it fits the subject matter because part of what draws me to the concept of insecurity is that it is both personal and political. You know, it's it refers to concrete material conditions. So we can talk about job insecurity, financial insecurity, food insecurity, housing insecurity, you name it. And there are all these metrics and all the scholarship about these, you know, objective realities. Uh, but it's also the lived experience of being food insecure, being housing insecure, being emotionally insecure. Um, uh, you know, and again, I work on issues of um, economic justice. So, you know, for me, I see in my work every day how financial issues affect our feelings, <laughs> our stress levels, our mental and physical health. Uh, and I think one thread through all my work is just wanting always to sort of break down the barrier between uh, the intellectual and the lived experience, um, uh, you know, and to say that, um, to kind of connect those realms, right? Like head and heart and um, seemingly objective and subjective, because that's, I, to me, I'm just like, that's more real. <laughs> that's where mm-hmm. we exist is, that's what, that that's the space we actually live in. So insecurity really as a concept does that. It spans these registers already. Um, but what I try to do again in a very accessible kind of engaging light touch way is provide a history of capitalism that underscores the centrality of insecurity. So, you know, again, um, you know, in my work as an organizer or even thinking about democracy as I have, you know, the questions about inequality have been really front and center over the last decade, the crisis of inequality, the concentration of wealth and power. And that's really important. Uh, And certainly that's one of the main uh, consequences of, of capitalism. But, I think insecurity gets short shrift because insecurity is really central too. And going back to uh, the transition from feudalism to capitalism, I think you can see how people had to be made insecure, literally like severed from the land that sustained them. Peasants were ripped from the land. This land was privatized before they could be turned into the proletariat, right? You have to create conditions where people can't sustain themselves before they will sell their labor (laughs) um, for a pittance. So insecurity is really central to our economic order. It's not just a sort of unfortunate consequence of economic dynamism and efficiency and growth. It's actually a central thing, you know, and so many economic policies to this day, centuries after enclosure, are geared towards ensuring that people are insecure, right? So the lack of uh, job security, the lack of labor protections, um, uh, you know, the erosion of the welfare state to just, you know, the the constant assault on our self-esteem through advertising and kind of consumerism. You know, it's, once you look at it, you're like, oh, this is everywhere. Um, and and so, you know, I, I get in this book, again, knowing I'd, you know, maybe sort of reach a kind of wider audience, it was like, you know, how can I help you understand that so many of the problems that you're facing stem from an economic system that 
is designed to actually exacerbate them, to not solve them. And so this is what I call manufactured insecurity. And manufactured insecurity is a kind of insecurity that's imposed on us, uh, you know, again, by denying us uh, the protections of a robust social safety net um, by, um, and, and it's based around a sort of fundamental, a theory of human motivation, right? That we need to be insecure in order to keep striving, keep working. Otherwise, you know, um, uh, if we get too secure, basically we'll get too lazy. We won't, we won't be productive anymore. Um, so that manufactured insecurity um, is something uh, that kind of recurs through the various the various lectures and chapters, and I contrast that with what I call existential insecurity, which is, you know, the fact that we're all vulnerable. We're all sort of in- inherently insecure on some level because we're mortal <laughs> creatures who need care throughout our lives. So, you know, on some level, insecurity is just the human condition. But we can structure our ways that attend to that insecurity, attend to that vulnerability, and uh, and. Uh, and um, ameliorate it or in ways that exacerbate it um, and that uh, take advantage of it um, and inflame it. And, you know, that's the path we're going on at the moment. Mm. I mean, one of the interesting things I found about um, your kind of descriptions of insecurity um, was the way in which you were quite careful to attend to like the the kinds of insecurities that felt across class divides, um, including those as sort of in the sort of middle, I don't know, people who would th- think of themselves as middle class were actually sort of a little bit higher, maybe. Um, yeah. There's, I broke down a little quote, I hope this is not too embarrassing, yeah. but you wrote that um, our possessions, monetary and otherwise, have a way of possessing us and turning us into people we may not actually want to be. I just wonder if you could just kind of expand on this a little and just tell us how, you know, those who may not seem to be kind of wanting of, of anything, you know, might actually benefit from, you know, thinking about how to make a less secure world, basically. Yeah. I mean, it's an an important part of the book is the, you know, I make the case that, you know, capitalism really, in my view, isn't working for the people who even, who it appears to be working for. Um, And so again, you know, I'm someone who spends my days organizing with debtors who people who have with people who have negative net wealth right people who are buried by student loans by medical debt because that's a huge crisis in the united states medical debt is held by 100 million people it's the leading cause of bankruptcy which means it's one of the leading drivers of homelessness uh people are indebted for incarceration we're talking about like minor traffic violations that end up spiraling out of control and can lead to jail time which then derails uh you know entire household security so, you know, I work with people who dream of getting their debts canceled and getting to zero. <laughs> but even if you get to zero or you get to a point where you're starting to become um, more affluent, the fact is that security is is elusive um, because of uh, decades of austerity, because of um, the fact that, uh, uh, you know, our again, our society is structured to not let people rest. You know, all it takes is a devastating enough uh, health crisis, you know, and, and a family, um, can tumble from the upper middle class, um, into, uh, into poverty. You know, there, we, we're now sitting in a moment where you're like, okay, another pan, the COVID pandemic's not over, but another pandemic could happen. We're seeing massive, uh, ecological catastrophes daily. I mean, we're just in a world of like innumerable risks and, and hazards. And, um, that, that creates real material insecurity on the one hand, but it also creates like a, a constant sense of foreboding. It's part of why people feel like they can't have, they don't have enough because even if you have a lot compared to a debtor, <laughs> you know, you still feel like it could slip from your fingers. Um, and there's reason to believe, you know, we're walking off a, we're walking off an ecological cliff. And so people all the more intensely feel like they have to protect what's theirs. Um, and so this, yeah, I mean, I just think even for those who appear to, appear to be winning by the logic of the capitalist game, there's huge negative consequences. I mean, people, um, uh, there's a lot to gain from uh, putting security at the center of social policy uh, and, and not just for the sort of least off among us. And that is just a, that's an important thing, I think, <laughs> to say politically, because I believe I'm talking about capitalism. I believe in class conflict, right? I mean, there are people right now spending millions to sabotage things I've fought for, like student debt relief, you know, to sabotage uh, green transition. But 
Um, but uh, those policies, that, 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 that's not good for the vast majority of humanity. <laughs> and, um, and if we want to combat that, we actually need to build a big movement, a big tent, um, which means, you know, on the one hand, yes, acknowledging differentials, acknowledging privilege, you know, acknowledging that not everybody is subjected to insecurity's harshest and most discriminatory edge, but nevertheless, there's actually a lot of commonality here to build on. And so one thing I say, and not in the book, but in a, it was a line I added to a, an excerpt that ran in the New York Times was that you know, inequality is important. And we think about inequality, which again is the dominant frame, you know, it encourages us to look up and down at it, uh, the difference between the very, very rich and the very, very poor. And it offers a sort of snapshot in time of these obscene, um, this obscene class division. Insecurity supplements that view. <laughs> we need inequality, but insecurity supplements that view. And it encourages us to look sideways and to see potentially powerful new commonalities. You know, yes, someone might have less, someone might have more, but that doesn't mean <laughs> that things are good for for those both of those folks. And you know, we can hold that um, awareness without collapsing difference, um, because we need to build coalitions in order to change this. And and to say the idea that the system is working for folks. Um, uh, is kind of a lie at this point. You know, I think the climate is the biggest example of that, right? Like nobody wins on a, on a burning planet. Oh yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, part of doing this kind of work to making, you know, improving security is to kind of actually define what we mean by security. Cause I yes. mean, you know, it's a term that like takes on a number of meanings depending on the context. So in the book you touch on like the ways in which the notion of, of security has been used for like anti-liberatory political ends. So mm. like, the sacrifice of civil liberties during the war on terror or as you mentioned earlier the violence of the castle state um that kind of promises to protect mm. the status and the, the material riches of you know people in the upper echelon so yeah i wonder if you could just kind of untangle you know the hegemonic notions of security maybe and you know from those types of security that might help us move toward a less uh, a more <laughs> solidaristic um freer society yeah. I mean, security is a tainted word in my view. You know, mm-hmm. I, I was in my 20s during the sort of payday of the war on terror when George W. Bush and his allies were engaging in bringing democracy to the Middle East through occupation and violence and all in the name of national security and homeland security. And I, you know, I sort of distinguish um, not quite in the same way as existential insecurity and 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 manufactured insecurity, but, you know, security too (laughs) has multiple meanings. And so there's a kind of uh, impulse towards what I call a kind of like bunker security, right? Or the individualistic defensive uh, notion of security versus something that is more collaborative or solidaristic, as you said, right? That ultimately, in my view, you know, we find security through collective actions and through creating social arrangements where people's needs are met. Um, you know, and, and, you know, a theme of my work is just that words need to be fought for. So, you know, this was the whole point of my film. What is democracy? <laughs> democracy is a fucking tainted word uh, full of ambiguities, <laughs> full of paradoxes. And, you know, people have said, well, let's just get rid of it. And then we'll talk about socialism or communism and communitarianism. Well, those words are complicated, too. And they don't have as much political weight. I mean, socialism, communism do. And and I, I'm embrace those words, but I just don't think we should abandon, you know, a term because it's been corrupted because that's what language is, right? Language is Mm -hmm. something where we have to um, always create and recreate meaning. So I think security is a a word worth reclaiming because A, the right talks about it a lot. And we're seeing this here where um, various like leading conservative politicians are writing books and security is in the uh, you know, subtitle, and they're not talking about national security, and they're really talking about people's economic lives, and pretending to be stalwarts of the working class, as though these like far right politicians are actually going to um, uh, close the wealth gap in any way. I know liberals in the UK. I'm not as up to speed. Are also talking about like securonomics and security as well, right? So, um, uh, you know, I'm talking about. Um, uh, security in, you know, a very capacious, far-reaching way and saying, you know, real security requires a kind of transformation, a revolutionary transformation of our society and economy. But I think given that 
given that the word is already on the political map, I mean, it has been forever and is kind of being brought to the fore again, I think it's really important to stake out a, a left-wing, small-D democratic, solidaristic position and say, okay, we, 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 you want to talk about security? You know what that really means? That means... Um, really taking care of people from cradle to grave means going beyond human security to security for the more than human world. You know, it means revaluing um, uh, uh, everything in our society. And so, um, but yeah, so I, uh, so, so definitely some of that wariness was with me as I started writing and I sort of, you know, try to, to mention it and say, we always need to ask security of what, for whom, at what cost, we need to reject the old sort of um, uh, liberal philosophical insistence that liberty and secu- sorry liberty and security are at odds, right? That we can only, you know because that's uh, a motif of political philosophy that we only achieve security by sacrificing our freedoms, um, you know, and and uh, uh, and that you know, or that we also need to challenge this idea that security is best achieved through through violence. Um, in this kind of defensiveness. So um, certainly security can be a dangerous concept, um, but that the same can be said with, for so many other words that are important. Mm, for sure. Um, so let's kind of dig into maybe some more concrete examples of insecurity yeah. now. Um, so one of your chapters focuses on kind of housing and healthcare. Mm. Um, so, you know, at one point, because um, obviously like the book kind of focuses on mainly Canadian and U.S., Yes. context yes. um and you know um that canadians often kind of express like a little bit of horror at like the u.s healthcare system mm. which is obviously quite well known for like bankrupting the sick basically <laughs> um, but at the same time they don't necessarily like bat an eyelid at like the dysfunctions of the housing system that mm. is also kind of enthralled to like you know market cruelties and you know, leaves people yeah. without roofs over their heads basically and i mean this is from the uk perspective this is def i think this is kind of similar in terms of you know the nhs's core principles remain something that you can't re- like tories can't really touch it it's still something that people support like c- quite staunchly yeah. um but when it comes to housing shelter that kind of stuff like privatized housing is still still seen as this like ideal really you know it's a thing that you use your your, your hard-earned money from your professional job to accumulate, um, yeah. you know, property and rely on that basically to secure your security, secure security, you know, <laughs> be secure yeah. in, in later life, basically. So I just like guess my question is like, what kind of explains this disconnected attitude really between healthcare, housing and sort of, you know, how do we address it, I suppose? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what, another thing with Canada is that there's kind of this smugness, right? It's like, well, hey, at least we're not the United States. And in healthcare, that works. I mean, the American healthcare system is is infamous for a reason. Um, not only is it the most expensive, but it, 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 you know, in terms of just overall dollars spent on it, you know, partly because of administrative bloat, right? Because there's all these private companies, insurers and administrators in there that don't need, wouldn't need to be there if they, it was a public system. Um, but because it condemns people to uh, incredible financial ruin. Um, but, you know, the Canadian healthcare system is in a crisis from a lack of investment and a, a lack of, I mean, I hesitate to use the word because I, I mean it in a good way, but the lack of, a lack of innovation, right? Like simple things like it's just not easy for people to get referrals to specialists like within 50 kilometers from where they live, <laughs> you know, something like that, that would just more efficiently direct people to the kinds of doctors that they need to see um, to, to restore public faith in what is ultimately an incredibly important institution, the Can- Canadian Medicare system. So partly because they're going, ha, wow, at least we don't have the American system. They're letting their own system crumble, mm-hmm. right? And um, it's a tragedy because people are waiting, you know, 12 13, 14, 15 hours at the emergency room. <laughs> and there's no reason for that. Um, in housing, people just assume that, oh, here, you know, in Canada, it must be better than the US. And it's not true. The Canadian uh, housing market is even um, 
more overheated and unaffordable for folks. There's marginally more social housing or public housing. So like, you know, 4% versus 1%, but it's not anything to be that proud of. Um, you know, and, and, uh, and so I tried to sort of get into the weeds of that debate without overwhelming the imaginary listener, you know, but I, I just felt like, okay, I have this opportunity to, again, reach people and, you know, you know, I want to get on my soapbox and, and make some points. And I think one point is we need social housing. (laughs) The market driven approach to housing is not working. And, and also this is something that we're so many people now relate because housing insecurity is creeping higher and higher up the income ladder. I mean, you need so much money to put a down payment on a house Um, and and a huge amount of money buys you so little I mean, it is mind-boggling, um, and and uh, you know it's supposed to be this tremendous privilege to then have a decades-long mortgage. So to rent, you know, essentially, you get to rent from a bank for 10, 15, 20, 30 years. <laughs> um, but what you get in that in that financial contract is the security of knowing, for the most part, like what your payment is going to be, right? Whereas everybody else who's renting is just like, wow, who the hell knows what I'm going to be paying in a couple of years, um, given the rapidly accelerating um, cost. Uh, so... I mean, in the UK, as you know, probably better than me, I mean, you know, there was much more social housing and under Thatcher, much of it was privatized, um, you know, millions of, of units. And it's just very striking to me that we've, you know, in the US, in Canada, uh, in the UK, you know, that our imaginations have been privatized too, right? That we really dream of homeownership. And why is that? I mean, part of it is like, yeah, having a home is nice. <laughs> you can pay, decorate it. You can paint the walls yellow or whatever you want, which are the color of mine and the little Zoom box. But, um, you know, a, a part of it is that as the overall welfare state of roads and there are less income supports, especially less supports in old age, then like your house is like, it is, it's not just, a chance to be housed, but it's like the chance you might be able to avoid destitution in old age, right? I mean, your house is your investment, which then locks you into just praying that it's going to keep appreciating in this wild way. And the consequence of that is like the next generation won't be afford be able to afford housing, even if you ma- if you manage to somehow get lucky and get in there. And it's just a, the pathologies are, you know, on full display. I mean, I just, you know, the thing is, it's one of those things where you're like, oh my God, you know, it's so bad now, but it's only going to get worse. Um, and the the solution is to you know turn housing into a commons, to turn it into a public good, to make housing housing instead of making it a speculative investment. And we just need to build the political will to do that. But it just felt like an opportunity to say that mm. <laughs> to an audience that is so steeped in what is you know uh, the American Canadian UK dream of homeownership, um, and it's just something that. Uh, you know, it's, it's a great example of what I try to, you know, of these various paradoxes, security paradoxes, right? That the path, the path, the paths to pass, sorry, the path to security that we're told to pursue have the effects of sort of undermining our collective security because this housing market is ultimately, I mean, the, the consequences for the broader community are just, and for next generations are just totally disastrous. I mean, in every American and Canadian city, it's just like enormous tent cities of folks who are unhoused and they weren't there five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, because the situation was less out of control. Yeah, yeah. I, something I could definitely relate to in terms of the UK top context. Yeah. I mean, you know, landlords are selling up basically so the number of people who can rent private housing is mm-hmm. much lower and you know i've, I've experienced this myself i've been evicted twice no fault oh, evictions no. they're called and they yeah. can evict you within two months for just just because they want to sell it basically so it's not yeah. just even the financial insecurity it's like the insecurity of being like well you know i've just moved in i could be here for another year and i'm gonna get kicked out again so like shall right. i just you know place this this piece of furniture here or who cares like it's not a home in a sense if you know what I mean yeah yeah well and the right to housing says that I mean you know I I started looking more carefully at human rights law and the right to housing is you know security of tenure and you know convenience right I mean this is the thing when people talk about housing as a human right it's it's not just like a roof over your head and the bare minimum but that sense Mm. of 
well, I can actually put down roots here. I'm in somewhere where I can get around easily. I'm in somewhere culturally appropriate. Um, and, you know, uh, that's obviously not most people's reality in this world. And in fact, you know, one of the, in fact, you know, housing is just becoming an asset at the next level. So I talk a lot about securitization and the fact that as more and more housing is bought up by corporate landlords from single family houses in the U.S. to apartment buildings um, uh, that uh, you know, the sort of landlord class is becoming even more sort of remote and ruthless in its extraction of profits from um, from these units, right? So, uh, you know, that's one thing that's really on my radar as an organizer with the Debt Collective and in our collaborations with various tenants unions. It's like, how do you... Um, how do you actually organize against these Wall Street property grabs? Um, and the fact that increasingly your landlord isn't just like a faceless company, but this international conglomerate that's just buying up units at the scales of ten hundred thousands um, of rentals and just squeezing people mercilessly. Yeah, indeed. Um, Details. Let's kind, of, let's, <laughs> let's kind of move away from... Um, the housing thing for a minute just to go to something a little bit more fun maybe um so the book is kind of obviously like threaded through with your own memories and anecdotes as we mentioned before um many of which kind of go some way to explaining like how your politics developed really um mm-hmm. i was really interested in your experience of education you know during your childhood moving from this kind of unschooling arrangement which maybe you can kind of define for us in a little bit more detail I don't think I could do it justice um moving from that to kind of enrolling in, in the mainstream school and I just wonder if you could just kind of expand a little on what this experience kind of taught you about how edu- education systems function under neoliberalism um and kind of the role insecurity plays in shaping young people's interactions with school again a big theme of the book is insecurity as a, as a motivating force, right? So part of manufactured insecurity is that it, it drives people to consume, to labor, um, to plan for their futures in, in specific ways. Uh, and, and insecurity is also used as a primary motivation in our educational systems, right? So teaching through fear, fear of a bad grade, fear of failure, fear of stigmatization, fear of unemployability, um, uh, fear of detention, you know, fear of red marks on your papers. And, and, uh, and this is, this was really striking for me as a kid, because as you mentioned, I was initially unschooled and I sort of tell the story of how my parents came to this or my mom's, um, uh, interesting story of growing up in the 60s and 70s but you know flash forward to the late 80s and um my family is unschooling in georgia so in the american south uh and we really stood out because actually in the south there are a lot of people who don't send their kids to school but they're called they're homeschoolers so they they do a kind of christian evangelical schooling in the home Um, And these people were like anathema to us because the whole point of unschooling is like no school, no replication of school, no, your parents don't pretend to be teachers. There's no curriculum. There's no bedtimes. There's no morning alarm bells. You know, my siblings and I literally were just left to do whatever we wanted to do and to follow our curiosity. So my parents saw curiosity as sort of a main attribute of the human child and their goal was to foster that and, and treat that as a kind of inherent motivator. Um, but, you know, it was fine, but I was lonely as a kid. So I would periodically try school. Um, and I always found it, I always felt like a little anthropologist. <laughs> this was like, what is this weird world where the parent, the grownups just boss you around and, um, and, you know, you're told what to do every minute of the day. Uh, you know, but eventually I did enroll in, in high school and I stayed there because I was afraid that I would be unemployable as an adult or illegible, right, to the, the actual real world if I didn't have a high school degree, if I didn't have grades to show people that, you know, I was a, a sort of not just a decent student, but a decent person. And so it was in those three years of high school that, you know, I really, again, because I think I had that outsider perspective, almost like an immigrant or something, right? It was like, Wow, why why are they why are they the the adults in the administration 
why are they trying to just motivate us with fear <laughs> and not tap? There, of course, were like some brilliant teachers who tried to foster a different kind of learning environment and tap into different motivations. And those are the teachers I remember, some of whom really changed my life, you know, but overall, the institution was actually kind of against them. And if anything, teachers have less freedom today to set, to set their own course. Um, so I think, you know, I think education is actually a really telling realm when we're looking at manufactured insecurity and we're looking at, at this motivation debate and the way that we actually inculcate people from a young age to be motivated through insecurity. And when you're talking about knowledge and learning, I think it's especially um, uh, devastating, right? Because for me, like learning is my greatest pleasure. <laughs> Curiosity is my greatest motivator, right? And I just saw all these kids like have that, they never had that chance to fall in love with the subject. They didn't have enough time, right? Like the bell would ring and they were off. And, um, and so I, I, and so it's no wonder that we live in a very sort of anti-intellectual culture, um, because people are trained to associate learning with punishment, right? And a few rich people buy their kids freedom from this and send their kids to these fancy, beautiful schools where the teachers <laughs> give them lots of space and individual encouragement. Or my parents, who had the ability to keep us at home, to, you know, to, to give us this alternative experience. And I think, you know, everyone deserves that. That's why I'm a huge advocate of public education and education is a public good. But why can't it be um, more, again, small, new democratic, more liberatory, um, and less about, you know, social control and manufactured insecurity? Yeah. And as you kind of, as you kind of allude to in the book, like curiosity is a threat to neoliberalism, essentially, which yes. is you know explains a lot of the reason why the university system is as as it is now and yeah. if you do do like an arts degree um or an english degree which i've taught on before like the students were so wrapped with sort of often um just anxiety about about the grades they get and like what jobs it would lead yeah. them to and it's yeah it's that kind of well, again, it's disciplinary right i mean it's sort of yeah. And, and debt is, you know, again, a huge, huge function of that. It's even if you, you know, disagree and you think I'm someone who does, I want to do a poetry degree or I want to even do something more humanistic, social sciences or something like that. Well, that debt is going to discipline you and keep you in line by imposing a kind of financial insecurity on you so that you end up having to go, um, you know, take the higher paying job to pay your debt rather than doing something else. And, you know, the, the data backs this up, especially in the U.S. It's like it creates a steady stream of corporate lawyers instead of public defenders, a steady stream of specialized surgeons instead of family doctors. You know, it, it drives people's career choices in major ways. So, um, you know, it's, it's both the kind of psychological warfare, right? Of like, you should feel... Um, that it's your fault <laughs> because you studied poetry or something, but then it's also just the sort of brute economic discipline, you know, and I, I cite in that chapter, one of my, I think one of the most telling quotes in American history in terms of the neoliberalism, and that is president Ronald Reagan explicitly calling for increased uh, tuition. Actually it was when he was governor of California. Sorry. So he was on his way to being the president of the U S and he says, you know, college shouldn't be free. <laughs> um, you know, uh, because the state should not be subsidizing curiosity. And it, it's because that curiosity is a threat. Why? I mean, Reagan was specifically incensed about the fact that college students who were going to the University of California for free at the time, he was incensed by the fact that they were protesting for racial justice, protesting um, against the war in Vietnam, uh, defending free speech. And he said, you know, and this is a quote, they should think, to, you know, we want them to pay so that they'll think twice before they pick up a picket sign. Yeah. God. And I mean, another factor that kind of, obviously kind of moving on a little bit that really impacts young people's sense of security um, is the climate crisis. <laughs> um, so one of the kind of paradoxes that you mention in the book um, is that, you know, the pursuit of, of pursuit of security through material accumulation and private property is actually undermining our long-term survivability um by trashing the, like the natural support systems that we rely on so 
you suggest kind of a key way to tackle this problem is to kind of reorganize our attitude towards the non-human. You kind of alluded to that earlier a little bit. Um, so essentially getting away from these kind of hierarchical attitudes that view nature as something to be dominating, something to just mm. utilize. Um, and instead, you know, we need to kind of appreciate the ways in which like we can work in harmony with non-human entities and, and environments. So yeah, could you just kind of speak a little bit more about this and, and the inter- interdependency between, you know, our, our security and the wider just ecosystem? Yeah. So one, you know, one point I, I make repeatedly in the book and in different ways is that our insecurity can have political consequences. And if we organize, you know, and the Debt Collective is an example of that, but movements for queer rights and uh, movements for disabled rights, movements, you know, for civil rights, all these movements have spoken to people's insecurities, their oppression, their vulnerabilities, and said, hey, (laughs) this is actually not about you being subhuman, you being um, someone who deserves to be mistreated, but actually it's a social problem. And let's come together. Let's, let's talk about these, uh, these experiences and let's work to change them. Right. So, you know, and saying things in response, like black is beautiful, right? Like we're queer, we're here, <laughs> get used to it. Or debtors saying, you know, I can't pay, I won't pay. You know, this is actually like turning that around, right. Turning that shame and stigma and t- making it into solidarity aimed at progressive social change. But there's a lot of empirical research that shows that insecurity can also be, you know, make people more susceptible to authoritarian appeals. And there's a kind of, you know, instability or social instability times of social crisis that make people more uh, susceptible to conspiracy theories. Um, again, to right-wing demagogues, to populists, right? A bad populist, um, not progressive populist. And that's just a, a reality. Um, so that is something that I'm attuned to throughout the book. And, you know, I think it's just important to say that, you know, a, a little known uh, or a, a rarely discussed facet of authoritarian, authoritarian politics is not just climate denial, which it definitely is, right? Mm-hmm. But this overt speciesism, right? Like, you know, like there's a huge thing, you know, about there's a huge emphasis on masculinity, authoritarian masculinity and red meat eating. Right. Um, the biggest slur from the far right is soy boy. Right. Like you are an effeminate tofu eater. You get an oatmeal latte. Right. I mean, the um, uh, and when um, sociologist I quote calls this petromasculinity and it's really this thing about, you know, not just a hierarchy of the human, right? Like, you know, a white um, uh, heterosexual masculinity, but like, and also like over the other animals, other creatures, right? So proudly using a gas stove, driving a big gas guzzler, having a barbecue with red meat. And it's, and, um, and it's kind of risible, but that's like a major political current in the world today. And I think we, the other side, need to meet that with a with a politics that's like, yeah, you know what? Like, soy boy. <laughs> I mean, you know, we are animals. We're embedded with the this natural world. Like, we are not separate and apart from it, let alone above it. And the fact is, we don't fucking understand how a lot of it works. Like, you know, ecology is an incredibly complex science. Like, let's have some humility in the sense of like intellectual humility and um, and, and the humility of realizing like, yes, we're part of something bigger than ourselves. Like that's seeing ourselves enmeshed in a, in a circle of life is not just like romantic blather, right? It's a, it's a scientific description of reality <laughs> that, you know, we are, we're not, um, you know, we're not individuals cut off from other things. I mean, we're like, you know, microbiomes <laughs> who are full of billions of other life forms, right? And so, um, you know, in that, in one lecture, I say, you know, we actually will never achieve human security if, if we actually remain within the boundary of the human. We have to go beyond it. We have to think about human, we have to think uh, about security for um, the plants and animals and ecosystems with which we're all enmeshed. And I think, um, but I think the urgency of that position uh, is in, in response 
to this authoritarian politics that really is so explicit about their contempt um, for, uh, you know, again, not just for other humans, but for, um, for animals and for the environment. And we're kind of, we're not sort of, um, I don't know, I think it's just something, a dynamic that's like rarely discussed because I think a lot of people who are progressive think that, um, you know, talking about animals and plants and stuff makes us look soft, but you know, it, it makes us look realistic in my view (laughs) and denying it is just like, um, you know, denying reality. Yeah. But it's so interesting. Some of the ways that like you describe people kind of pushing back against this in terms of like going through like legal routes, granting Mm -hmm. sort of personhood to, to rivers, for example. Um, yeah. And I guess it's part of like, that approaching stuff with curiosity trying new stuff and yeah yeah well and also you know the thing is you know i've I've, I've written enough on democracy to know that the granting of rights to various political subjects we now take for granted was revolutionary in its time right well women haven't been voting for that long you know um black people haven't been voting for very long Uh, indigenous people were disenfranchised um, until the last century, you know, it's like these new, and, and it wasn't like that was obvious to the people in power at the moment. Right. I mean, they were just, you know, the founding fathers of the United States would have been as shocked at the idea of women voting as granting rights to nature, probably. Right. I mean, these were not, you know, rational, capable political subjects. And so it's just, you know, that we've been going through this we we were living in you know one chapter of this ongoing revolution of democratic rights and I, you know my view is like who are we to say we're at the end of it you know and there are lots of places where rights of nature is written into constitutions it's written into domestic law um it's being put into practice in really interesting ways i mean i just sort of scraped the surface in the lectures but just to say that this idea that seems far out is actually being implemented it also has deep philosophical roots in other non-Western legal and political traditions, like just open your mind, but, but yeah, exactly. Be curious. You know, there are other ways of, of setting up political systems. Yeah. Um, I kind of move on to like the final stuff I wanted to address just so we can not go too long. Um, so in the final chapter, you kind of write about the practicalities of, of, of striving security in like a really highly financialized economy. Um, and it's clear that your background with the debt collective means you have this really like in-depth understanding of both the ways in which finance capitalism works to dispossess people, sometimes like by stealth, really, and the potential steps that we can kind of take to tackle this through like organizing and solidarity movements. So, yeah, could you just kind of look a little bit deeper in some of the ways in which the financial sector evades risk by kind of passing it on to everyday people? Because there are some examples in the book, I think, that I, I didn't really know anything about. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, I try to also, so I really did cram a lot into a short book. You did. But, um, yeah. I mean, so one is a history of thinking about risk um, and, and risk connects to insecurity because again, insecurity isn't just a natural state. It's not, it's, it's manufactured. And so it's not fairly or justly apportioned across the, um, uh, uh, the social body, right? I mean, you know, some people bear the brunt of insecurity more than others um, because of their race, because of their gender, because of their sexual orientation, because of their class, and so on. Um, so this question about how do we share risk, how do we even conceive of risk, uh, is really sort of essential and, and, and interesting. Um, and that... Um, uh, you know, one way of understanding neoliberalism, which is a phenomenon you've mentioned, is that it was a corporate sort of counter-revolution to the gains of the mid-20th century when, you know, it, the welfare state has always been imperfect, but there was the shrink, um, a shrinking of the, the wealth gap, right? So a kind of egalitarianism that hadn't been seen before, um, a strengthening of the welfare state. I mean, in, in the UK, that actually nationalized healthcare and railroad and other things in the U.S. is more of a messy public-private hybrid. Uh, Canada was a bit more in the public dimension, um, and labor unions 
were brought into a kind of legal regime. And so workers were able to actually start negotiating um, and sometimes literally brought into power through labor parties, which again is something the U.S. didn't have and I think is a major source of our problems here. The U.K. obviously did. In fact, it was the labor party that brought about the welfare state. So, um, uh, so neoliberalism is a response to those gains and the gains also uh, in the 60s of feminists, environmentalists, of these new social movements that were also emerging and challenging the political status quo. And so, you know, when we talk about neoliberalism, we talk about austerity, we talk about attacks on labor. But one consequence of it was that risk, which it was being collectivized through those welfare provisions, right, through those social protections, risk was for that period, you know, moving in a collective direction <laughs> and treated as a kind of commons, like, okay, we, we need to pay into social insurance programs. We need to provide a, a safety net to catch people because you never know life is risky. Some accident might befall somebody. And so they should have a way of, uh, they should have uh, um, insurance so that their life isn't destroyed. Like this is this is actually a matter of public concern. The neoliberal agenda says, nope, let's offload risk back onto individuals. So we erode the welfare state, we attack labor unions, wages stagnate, and suddenly, you know, you have no choice but to take on debt for your basic needs. You know, and it's worse in the United States, but it's bad everywhere else, right? So it's like, okay, so healthcare is not a, not a public good anymore. Well, now you're going to have to pay for it with your credit card. Education is not a public good anymore. You're going to have to take out student loans. And um, and uh, and so we're all living in what Albert Beck called a risk society where on one hand, you know, on, on the sort of base economic level, risk has been offloaded onto us. We're all responsible for ourselves and ourselves alone. Um, and if we're poor in old age, it's because we didn't save properly or invest property properly. But also we're in a moment of, you know, increasing hazards that are the consequence of this this. Uh, um, market triumphalism. So the you know the climate crisis is a direct consequence of and the lack of regulation and this obsession with economic growth is the be all and end all. You know AI. <laughs> we can't regulate AI because you know innovation. Blah blah blah. Um, and and so um, that you know the chapter looks at various things. You know one is just the the rise of the insurance industry as sort of the ultimate. Security again, one of these paradoxical systems that promises us security while actually undermining it and turning our vulnerability into market opportunity. Um, so we see this, you know, I mean, the insurance industry is fascinating. They're sitting on tens of trillions of dollars in assets because they need large pools of money to make payouts to us. What do they do with that money? They invest in fossil fuel companies, which are then destabilizing the climate, creating more climate risk. And then they're like, shit, we've created more climate risk. Let's get reinsurance. And then they start creating these sort of um, securities that are very analogous to the mortgage-backed securities that brought down the global economy in 2008. I mean, it's just like, I mean, and this is where you have to go, huh, I know I'm not a financier. I don't have a PhD from MIT, but this seems like fucking stupid. And that's because it is, right? Like, this is not some brilliant scheme that you're just not educated enough to get. It's like, no, this is just a system that isn't designed to create profit out of suffering um, and uh, that you know, defies any kind of sort of humane logic. And like, let's call a spade a spade. We don't actually, um, you know, and so part of the work of that section, just like the work of the debt collector was like demystifying finance a bit and saying like, yeah, you know, let me lay this out for you. And if it sounds like terrifying bullshit, that's because that's what it is. Um, and then let's get back to basics and be like, okay, how would we actually provide for each other? And that welfare state experiment of the 20th century, yes, it was imperfect. It left a lot of people out, especially in the U.S. where people of color and women were excluded from a lot of basic provisions. But, you know, it actually, it worked in lots of ways and we can revive that and build on it. Um, and, uh, you know, it's actually, it's not as complicated as we're told it is. Yeah. I mean, part of that work as well is not just like enlightening people about the really fucked up like way in which to, you know the financial economy is arranged but to kind of help people like get away from the shame that you mentioned this in the book quite yes. a bit, like the shame that is kind of inculcated in people from you know it being in debt basically um mm. and you know that could be sort of this 
in some ways the barrier to organizing um and also more generally i think just generally living in neoliberalism means it's quite difficult to put oneself out there when we're also atomized <laughs> i know i yeah. feel this definitely um and you know we're kind of taught to treat each other with suspicion in a way so i don't know mm. do you have any kind of just to end do you have any sort of well, I think wise this, words yeah. any tips <laughs> yeah well i think that that's again going back to the beginning of you know why this book why this frame is because Economic issues are emotional issues. Again, you know, you're talking about sh shame. This is something the Debt Collective talks a lot about. So the shame of being indebted when the game is rigged, so you have no other choice. So one of our slogans is people are not in debt because they live beyond their means, but because they're denied the means to live. When wages are stagnant, I mean, federal minimum wage in the U.S. is $7 an hour. You know, you can't live <laughs> on $7 an hour. So, of course, you're uh, how are you supposed to pay, you know, for a $1,500 ambulance ride except through debt? Um, so, you know, the, and and people are shamed for being on welfare programs, shamed for being on the dole, right? Shamed for needing food stamps uh, and, and so shamed about it that just millions of people are actually eligible for some benefit, but don't apply because they've been, um, you know, told that to do so uh, would mean that they are failures. So I think pushing back against that is, is really critical. And that's, you know, the thing is the right wing is talking to people's emotional lives. They're saying, hey, you're afraid. Well, you should be afraid. You should be really afraid of immigrants, of trans people, of educated students demanding safe spaces, of you know people who want to take away your hamburgers. <laughs> be afraid. Um, and but what uh, you know what are what are we saying in response to that? I mean, right now the Democratic Party of the United States is saying literally this is the line coming from the White House: the economy is not as bad as you think. There's actually been growth. Um, why are you all being so negative about the economy? Look at this chart. Growth. Instead of going, well, where's the growth gone to? Who's who's actually gained? You know, okay, people feel okay now, but maybe they feel insecure because they don't trust that they're gonna um, not see prices spike again in six months, or because they know that rent bill is gonna go up in a year, right? That that um uh and 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 talking to people, you know, in terms that actually take seriously the way uh, way that they feel the stress that they're experiencing. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, the first step to organizing is like connecting with people on that visceral level, um, because, you know, that's that's sort of the, the step one of solidarity. <laughs> After that, you need to start devising strategies and those can be sort of electoral political this can be you know focused on the workplace you can open new fronts in the fight by you know organizing again tenants unions debtors unions um uh you know there's so many ways uh to to exert collective power but um you know i think politicizing our emotional lives is a really good first step and the, and the other side is doing it so we better catch up <laughs> Yeah, great. I think that's a really good sort of note to end on. Um, but I have to ask my final question, which I ask everyone, okay. which is, uh, what do you have going on at the moment? Any books, projects? I think you mentioned a new book earlier, actually, but I'll reiterate again. Books, projects, events that you want to kind of let people know about? Yeah, this was sort of a, a short, sneaky book that kind of disrupted my schedule and um, uh, delayed a, a longer uh, project, uh, one that I had been working on since the very beginning of the pandemic, that is a book on solidarity. Uh, and that book is out in March, so I really hope people check it out. And you know, I'll just say, since you have a readership that is interested in ideas and books, you know, it was very striking to me that there are a lot of books on democracy. I wrote one of them. There are books on equality. There are books on freedom. There are books on justice. There's almost nothing on solidarity as a political ideal, <laughs> partly. And I think partly because solidarity isn't just an abstract question. Uh, sorry, solidarity isn't just an abstract concept. It's something you actually have to do, mm -hmm. um, uh, which makes it like a much messier um a messier subject to write about. But anyway, we're trying to slightly remedy that that dearth of resources, my co-author, Leah Hunt Hendricks and I. Um, and so that's something I'm really excited uh, to share with people. And, um, you know, ho hopefully it's a good conversation starter. It was one of those books I felt like, oh, I could write this just for the rest of my life. 
<laughs> never <laughs> um, so at a certain point we're just like okay we're done um, you know let's put this out and get in dialogue with folks but I'm really excited about it well yeah I mean I'm interested to read it for sure you should come back on come back on the ebooks network and we can yeah, chat <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it'll be really fun I'll get you a copy oh yes fab okay um right I'll wrap this up now so thank you so much Astra for joining me I think yeah it was a really interesting conversation thanks so much for having me and for the thoughtful questions and just for reading my book I appreciate it thanks <laughs>